Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another fantastic episode of Fantastic Mr. Fox Minute. I am one of your hosts, Condra Boudreau. And I'm the other host, Tyler Boudreau, not doing the intro today. Aw, oh, yeah! I decided to share the love. Take it over, everyone! <laughs> There's been a mutiny! Okay, I'll blink twice if, if I'm being held hostage. Um, welcome back to Minute 84. For the listener at home, I did not blink twice. I'm not being held hostage. We're in your room. That would be quite a turn of events. Welcome back to Minute 84. You could 80- be held hostage in your own room. I know. But Any- I feel like I would have Anyway, this is a show with a, with a topic. Wow! I was taking over, and then I've already lost it! Haha, <laughs> <laughs> now you know what it's like. What? No, you're a good, you're a good co-host. You don't interrupt me. Anyway, what are we talking about this minute? Minute 84! (laughs) (laughs) Which starts with the credit for Mrs. Bean and ends with the McKinnon and Saunders credits for their puppet crew. Is that when a bunch of puppets row boats? (laughs) No, it is. It's hard because they have those skinny little arms! Alright, this is going to be a weird episode, everyone. I've already taken my medicine for the evening. Tyler's really hyper. Are you picturing Kermit the Frog rowing a boat? Because I am. (laughs) It sounds funny. No. If anything, it's more like when the um, pig Vikings in the Muppets, they sing that song. We want you. We want you. I don't remember that. What? That's like one of the... Is it from the Muppets show? The show, yeah. And Lane Cart, Hogthrob... And Miss Piggy and all the other pigs are on Vikings. We are sailing. I don't remember that. Uh, I do love Link Hogthrop, though. No. He's he, a great Muppet. He is. And um, this particular min- or that particular skit, they the pigs come in on a Viking ship to pillage and plunder a town. And they end up recruiting all of these people. Um, from the village, including chickens and things, um, and it ends with them all sailing off. It's a very good clip. I feel like it's called, like, We Are Sailing or something like that. Uh, if you just look up Muppet Show Vikings... <laughs> Muppet Show, I'm on a boat. Vikings, it's gonna come up because it is, like, classic Muppets. It's from the first or second season, too, so it's, like, really classic Muppets. So, anyway, we're talking credits on this episode, so we're we're just gonna talk and then... So we get a few, so we get the end of the peop, the cast, yeah. and then we start into some of the more crew. Uh, we get the animation department, story department, art department, art department modelers, and then the puppet department, which is different than the McKinnon and Saunders puppet crew. So every time I say puppet crew, Tyler just gets like this dumb face <laughs> on his, and he starts giggling. So we point, we've picked out a few names. Yes. This was the only thing that we thought of to do, is to just pick out funny names from the credits. That is not true. You also prepared a se- segment of this. Yes, but having to do with the, the movie as we watched it for this minute. Yes. So we have, from the animation department, we have everyone's favorite uh, hardware man, Tim Allen. <laughs> <laughs> and the voice of Buzz Lightyear. Cor- and the uh, protagonist of Galaxy Quest. That is true. Protagonist. Protagonist. <laughs> That's what you said. I know. I know. I say. I say that on purpose. Because you're lame. No, because it's funny to when you mispronounce words. Except you people don't understand what you're saying. Then maybe it's a cryptophone. 
Wow. Way to way to pull in that deep cut Star Wars Minute reference from their credit episodes, too. Hey, no one listens to Movie by Minute podcast if they don't already listen to Star Wars Minute. True. The true. Rest in peace. Email us if you listen to this show and you don't listen to Star Wars Minute. We, we don't get any emails. We're starting to get lonely. We've been trapped in this room for so long. We need some outside communique. You'd think we would have developed a smarter strategy to escape other than just having a show about something completely different. 2D animator Ray Lewis. Ah, uh, yes, that would be the Baltimore Ravens linebacker Ray Lewis, who uh, won the Super Bowl in 2000, I believe, and also was accused of murder, but was acquitted. If you can't convict, acquit. That's a phrase, right? Yeah. <laughs> if you can't convict, you must acquit. Yeah. That's that's from the O.J. Simpson trial. Yeah. If you can't convict, you must acquit. That's the title of the episode, by the no. way. No. <laughs> we could definitely come up with a better one. Uh, so he's a 2D animator. It's weird. He spent all those years in football, and this would have been while 2009, so this was still while he was in the NFL. Yeah. I would assume it's the water splash is one of the major 2D elements. From this, I was trying to think of some other ones. Um, did you have any that you came up with that were I like... I literally didn't think about this at all, so... Oh, cool. Because <laughs> I put effort into this show. You prepared something, unlike me. That's why I'm hosting today. So should we just I did do this, Should we do the whole episode talking about how I have something prepared and then we just talk about, <laughs> like talk for too long and then we have to cut it, till, save it till next week? No, because we already had to save it until next week. <laughs> And we've only got so many weeks left. They're going to wonder what this segment is. Uh, then in the puppet department, we have everyone's favorite original Beatle, Stu Sutcliffe. Yes, Stuart Sutcliffe. Um, so he was the original bass player. Yeah? And then he died of a brain tumor? Yeah, he died very suddenly right before they were about to go to Germany. Yeah. And they were very upset, or they were in Germany or, or something. It was like right, or, it was like before they got big in any means. It was before all their German stuff. So it was quite tragic. And that's where they got George in, I believe. No, I no. think that's when Paul switched to bass. That's right. Would have been after Stu died. Yeah. But they would have had three guitarists and one bassist. That's a lot of guitars. Granted, John was rhythm guitar. Yeah. George was lead lead guitar. I don't know what Paul Paul's guitar moves were, were, and that would have been when they had Pete Best on drums. Oh yeah. Who's your favorite fifth Beatle? Um, oh, what's his name? George Martin. Yeah, that's probably the best answer. I think it. Is. I mean, really. Who's the guy on Let It Be? The keyboardist. Not as familiar with the later, like as much. I know all the Beatles songs and all that kind of stuff. I know who you're talking about, the (laughs) organist. Yeah, that people claim to be a fifth Beatle because he played organ slash keys on one song. Billy Preston. Yeah, that that sounds right. Yeah, Tyler didn't Google that. Every uh, listeners at home, he just like came up with that off the top of his head. Well, yeah, it took me 30 seconds to remember it, but I got it. Yeah, but it sounded like you could have been Googling it. At I least have... I didn't say Phil Spector. Because I said it as a question. I said, Billy Preston? Maybe. There might be a bit. <laughs> um, I still don't know what that's a reference from, but I laugh because I know it's something that uh, I just can't remember. It's a Mike Birbiglia bit. That's right. He's he's <laughs> with his sister, and she says, Mike? <laughs> 
<laughs> as if during that that phrase she realized there was a bear. <laughs> there might be a bear. <laughs> That's um, right. Yay, me just saying other people's stand-up bits. Yee. Jokes, jokes, jokes. Should we move into this bit, I, this segment I, I came up with, Condra? Yeah. So Tyler found a book at the library, everyone. Yeah. And it's not Fantastic Mr. Fox, so that would have been a power move. No, this is Trust Your Children, Voices Against Censorship in Children's Literature by Mark West. The second edition. The second edition. Uh, it's mainly comprised of interviews, so I would imagine that Mark West is the person that conducted the interviews and probably wrote an introduction or something. Or edited them. Yeah, but it's it's not like a... Short essays or anything it's like not, that? It, yeah, there's no essays to it. It's not a Richard Dawkins novel where it's just 300 pages of philosophical rambling. And it's not Fahrenheit 451. Sadly. Uh, Ray Bradbury? No. I have no idea. I've yes. read it once. <laughs> yes, it is Ray Bradbury. Okay, I actually... Speaking of Fahrenheit 451, I'm gonna. that's going to be one of my upcoming programs... In the next month, the Michael B. Jordan movie. No, I decided that would be too much of um, a a downer on the end of my week because I'm showing for Band Book Week. I'm showing a different movie that was turned or a band book that was turned into a movie every day. Wait, is Fahrenheit 451 in itself a band book? Yeah, because that's how yeah. many levels of that? Like, how meta? Can you get also like how dumb do you have to be to want to ban the book that's about banning books? Yeah. No, like, really. You just have to be a, a parody of a... <laughs> it's basically a Weird Al song, because it's just as popular. Uh, uh, but I figured, because the Michael B. Jordan one's not very good... We did once watch the old 50s, 60s yeah, the, version. Yeah, and that's the one I'm going to be showing, because that's, like, the one. Yeah. But I'm showing Harry Potter. Whoa. And The Hate You Give. Whoa. And Sophie's Choice. Whoa. And I'm showing the new version of Great Gatsby because... Yeah, Boz Lerman, baby! Yay! Give me that Leo and that Tobey Maguire. Oh, yeah. And all that Beyonce and Jay-Z. Yes, Jay-Z produced the movie. Yeah, and it's very obvious. But the... It's a good movie. It is, and the the cover of Crazy and Love It... Or so, the, not the cover, the remix. Yeah, is good. so good. But I figured if I'm showing all these other classics, might as well show a new movie. Yeah, and honestly, like, when you're adapting Great Gatsby, like, just do it. It's pretty straightforward. It's like the Baz Luhrmann <laughs> version of Romeo and Juliet, which I'm like, or, excuse me, Romeo plus, plus Juliet. Juliet. Uh, it, it's good. Okay. So, censorship. So, I've, there's, so basically, in this in this book, there's an interview with Rural Dahl. So, it, hold on, I didn't even look at the, uh, the copyright date of this book, because it would have been, while he was alive, uh, 1997 this was copyrighted? It's so he was alive, but you weren't. <laughs> he was alive, but I wasn't. I don't know when. What year did Roldal die? My phone's dead. I don't know. We'll never know. Uh, okay, so basically, the first first couple questions are about Charlie and the Chocolate Factory and the Witches, which are the Roldal books to be most notably banned at times. Mm-hmm. Now, granted, Roldal has actually has an inter- interesting perspective on this because he actually changed Charlie and the Chocolate Factory away from the original characterization of the Oompa Loompas, which were, like, more explicitly, like, African, what he calls pygmy characters. Yeah. At the time, a stereotype of kind of your most savage beings um, coming from 
the heart of darkness kind of thing. Yeah, and so obviously he was contacted by the NAACP and the characters were later changed to being pink and from just a random island. Still a tinge of colonialism, but... A little less! A little less obliquely racist. Yeah. Um, And then he also had trouble with the witches because of its characterization of just like... Women? A group of independent women. Heaven forbid we have our own brains! (laughs) So... There might be a bear. (laughs) We have our own brains? That could be a title. Uh, Yeah. Okay, and then... So we get into some questions that I I think are actually pretty interesting for us to dive into. Okay. Uh, So I'm just going to essentially read out from this book out loud. Oh, gosh. Many people feel that children's books should serve some higher purpose, such as teaching moral lessons to children. What do you see as the purpose of your children's books? This is Rule Doll. My only purpose in writing books for children is to encourage them to de- develop a love of books. I'm not trying to indoctrinate them in any way. I'm trying to entertain them. Yee. If I can get a young person into the habit of reading and thinking that books are fun, then, with a bit of luck, that habit will continue through life. The person who is what I call a fit reader has a terrific advantage over those who are not readers. Life becomes richer if you have the whole world of books around you, and I'll go to practically any length to bring this world to children. I love that! That's, like, what I aspire as a librarian, and I kind of want to copy that and, like, put it on my cart at work. Yeah. Because, like, that is exactly, like, what I have, like, strove? Striven? Strived. Strived? Yeah, I think it's strived. Smited? (laughs) Smite me, almighty smiter! What a good movie. Um, but it's honestly like one of my my drivers and what I want to do with my life and how I feel fulfilled when I know I've truly impacted someone that it could become a lifelong thing. It's something that's difficult for me because my interest in kind of the more metacognitive aspects of literature is always attracting to me the questions of like, well, what does it mean? Why are people drawn to this? What 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 are the takeaways from this? And with Rule Doll, it's often harder to pin down because a book like Fantastic Mr. Fox, it just kind of rambles and then ends. And then you're like, OK, what did I learn? That the fox was more clever than the people. Yeah. Which is why I love this movie, obviously, because it takes the kind of rambling nature of a Rule Doll story and turns it into a very meaty, uh, emotional yeah. adaptation. I mean, we've spent 84 minutes Talking about the weighty nature of this story, so. But at the same time, I do just believe in the importance of laughter. And at the end of the day, like most of his books are about being kind and showing love and doing the right thing. Yeah. Which are always something I can get behind. Also, like even Matilda, it's just to be yourself and to be proud of who you are. And I think that even is the case for Fantastic Mr. Fox, because it is something like a be proud of who you are, be your natural self, like be who you are and not who someone else describes you to be or take advantage of your natural talents, like be accepting and caring of yourself. And obviously, we agree with him on the idea that if you read as a child, you're going to have an advantage as you grow up. That's scientifically proven. (laughs) Uh, Next question. Why do you think many adults are made uncomfortable by your children's books? Because he tells it like it is. Aw, snap. Uh, Here's Roald Dahl's answer. I think they may be unsettled because they are not quite as aware that 
they're not quite as aware as I am that children are different from adults. Children are much more vulgar than grown-ups. They have a coarser sense of humor. They're basically more cruel. So often, though, adults judge a book, a children's book, by their own standards rather than by the child's standards. Mm -hmm. This is why it is also so difficult to write a book that children like. By the time you're an adult and are able to write well, it's hard to see the world from a child's point of view. There have been a lot of very famous writers who have tried their hand at writing for children but have failed to create enduring books. I, yeah, no, I can 100% get behind that. Uh, Just working with kids for so many years, you definitely see a difference in behavior and I find it easier to talk to kids and, like, get what I want, like, need, like, to get information from a child is so much easier. Because you can be so much more direct and they're not going to, like, skirt tail it kind of thing. And I think finding those right books, that is really tricky. Like, personally speaking, I still read more like a child. I can't get into adult books because often they're a little less accessible and they're, like, more for the writer than for the audience. I th- That's what I experience a lot of the time, which is, I think, why I like children's books so much more, because they are writing for someone else. Like, I think Rick Riordan's publishing company is a great example of this, because they're writing to give representation to all of these people in, in the world. And even Uncle Rick himself trying to show off different types of people and tell stories that mean more than just oh, do I like this guy or do I not like this guy? (laughs) Oh, everyone in my family's so wealthy and all of a sudden they've cut me off because I like this guy. I can't get behind a story like that. Now are you attacking Jane Austen herself or? Uh, Oh, I didn't even think about that. (laughs) I've never read a Jane Austen. I've watched Pride and Prejudice twice in my life. I'm not a big Jane Austen. I've seen Clueless. That's pretty good. Yeah. (laughs) Wait, is that based off of? Clueless is based off of the Jane Austen novel, Emma. I didn't realize that. What a classic film. I agree. I, there was something I wanted to comment on. Were we, Children's what? books. like. Oh, being... I was going to say, I don't necessarily agree that like all adult books are like written purely for the author. But I do find it interesting that in the case of writing for children, you are writing with a more specific audience in mind. Mm-hmm. And that often tailors your narrative or your kind of language your language or structure your focus in a certain way that makes that gives the book some more targeted mm-hmm. approach although I, I think novel writing on its own is is an art form it's just i don't know it's like a higher art form yeah i mean the difference between the hobbit and lord of the rings for me is The Hobbit's a lot more direct. I get lost in Lord of the Rings. I can't read Lord of the Rings. Yeah. But The Hobbit's my favorite book, so go yeah. figure. All right, I'm going to move on to the next question. All right. Some people say that the adults in your books come across too negatively. How do you respond to this charge? I generally write for children between the ages of seven and nine. Probably probably right. Yeah. If they're being read to, then maybe a little younger. Or I would even put, like, some of the themes of some of his books. Like, even The Witches, I'd put that maybe at a ten. Yeah. At these ages, children are only semi-civilized. They are in the processes of becoming civilized, and the people who are doing the civilizing are the adults around them, specifically their parents and their teachers. Because of this, children are inclined, at least subconsciously, to regard grown-ups as the enemy. I see this as natural, and I often work it into my children's books. That's why the grown-ups in my books are sometimes silly or grotesque. I like to poke fun at grown-ups, especially the pretentious ones and the grouchy ones. 
I definitely see, like, him poking at the pretentious ones. I think, though, where I definitely note where people get a little uncomfortable with Roald Dahl is when his adults become negligent or abusive. And mm-hmm. while that is a real thing, and some children, unfortunately, do suffer that in their lives, for, I don't know, for him to trivialize, like, the intense negligence and abuse that James and or Matilda face... Yeah, I don't know if those characters are, are as trivialized because the jokes are always on those characters. When I th- and I, I'm thinking mostly of the movies, but Matilda's parents are the butt of the joke. They're being punched up at or punched down at, depending on where. Yeah, it just they are very like it makes the protagonist that much stronger because they overcome those situations i think james is probably a better example because james truly is neglected and abused not to say matilda's not but james just goes through a different circumstance and really like there's a fairness to it well i think the interesting thing here is like if people if people were complaining about how the adults in James and the Giant Peach or Matilda were being portrayed, you'd have to point out to them that they are abusers and that they probably deserve to be treated as grotesque characters. Yeah, no. Then I- there, but there are some other books where, like Fantastic Mr. Fox, where the farmers are just kind of... Bumbling oafs. Bumbling oafs. Or they're portrayed by the Quentin Blake illustrations as kind of like low-class hicks. Like, yeah. So, it's yeah. interesting. yeah. But I, I like his kind of psychological approach. Yeah, to no, that. absolutely. And it makes a perfect sense, like trying to find someone, something that the children, his readers can relate to. All right, a couple more. Another complaint that one sometimes hears about your books is that they are too violent. What are your thoughts on the inclusion of violence in children's books? He says, I do include some violence in my books, but I always undercut it with humor. It's never straight violence, and it's never meant to horrify. I include it because it makes children laugh. Children know that the violence in my stories is only make-believe. It's much like the violence in those old fairy tales, especially the Grimm's tales. Mm. Those tales are pretty rough, but the violence is confi- confined to a magical time and place. When violence is tied to fantasy and humor, children find it more amusing than threatening. I get that. Yeah, no. Um, I like When I think violence in his books, first thing that comes to mind is like Mike TV getting stretched. Yeah, or Mr. Fox being shot at. Yeah. That's pretty... Yeah, no, they're definitely, like, it, he does get dark and gruesome. And, like, that's a thing. Roald Dahl is often called dark in the way, like, Lemony Snicket is a dark yeah. au- children's author. But still, they they undercut it with humor. And I think it's interesting. I never thought about it that way. Like, to undercut it with humor, like, calms it down a bit. Um, there's a question about why he talks about bodily function. It's And it's basically, like, because children find it hum- funny and because it humanizes adults. Mm-hmm. And that he's... Well, that's a really important point. Like, the idea of bodily functions in humans, especially adults, especially female adults, because heaven forbid we have bodies (laughs) that are just bodies and not objects. Sorry. Um, And then he talks about how in the BFG he calls farting whiz-popping. Yeah. Uh, Last question. You clearly place a lot of emphasis on humor. Could you say it's a... Could you say a bit more on the value of humor in children's literature? He says, The one magic ingredient you can find in virtually all first-rate children's books is humor. There are a few exceptions, The Secret Garden, for example, Mm. but most good children's books make children laugh. I'm trying to follow in this tradition. If children find 
my book's amusing. If they laugh while they're reading it, I feel I have succeeded. If I offend some grown-ups in the process, so be it. It's a price I'm willing to pay. Yee! I, yeah, no, I'm, like, going through, like, some of the big books of our time and Harry Potter, I think, being a good example with having some very funny Yeah, or, as you said, like, Rick Riordan's Percy Jackson books. Wicked funny Those moments. are, I mean... Yeah. Um, it's this kind of thing that Wes Anderson works so well in is that you need to have the highs of humor to have the lows of drama. Yeah. I, it's like I'm trying to think of some of the more like classic children's literature that he was kind of alluding to. And that's stuff like Peter Pan and Wizard of Oz. <laughs> and like, actually, I will say E.B. White does a good job with that, um, with like Charlotte's, Charlotte's Web yeah, and... That's- um, that's that, what he's talking about, is it's yeah. probably slightly more humorous. Than. Yeah, but like stuff like Wizard of Oz and Peter Pan, those I don't think have the same amount of humor that like Roald Dahl has, or E.B. White even to some extent, or Mary Poppins is wicked funny. Like, yeah. there are, like The Borrowers has its very comedic moments, like these cla- what is now considered classic children's literature. You have your Secret Gardens and your Peter Pan that are very, like, sweeping, even Tuck Everlasting. Person and- goes to this place and meets a person. Yeah. But that's not very funny. But it's very, it is much more in the vein of classical literature in, like, an Oliver Twist, Charles Dickens kind of idea, as opposed to the funnier romps. Well, it can be some, it can sometimes be didactic, like, a child is going to a place and this is how they're supposed to act. Yeah, or if Peter Pan is actually an allegory for death. Who knows? <laughs> or just for how, uh, what's his name was a creepo. Barry? Yeah. Oh, also. <laughs> Yeah, but I think that is a very important point that people can sometimes belittle in modern children's literature. Cause or, you in have, all, or in or all any, art ever. Yeah, because you have, like, phenomenons like Diary of a Wimpy Kid, which is genuine. The first one is genuinely a funny book, and I think it yeah. is actually a really brilliant piece of children's literature. Yeah. But people are like, oh, it's just a lot of burp jokes and, like, cootie jokes and, like, very childish but it's getting kids to read in a way they have not engaged with literature before. And it's it's fairly subversive. Yeah. In the way that, like, Diary of a Wimpy Kid comes out in a time where, like, yeah, you don't need to be telling, a, like, a, like a story. Mm-hmm. It can just be life. Life told from a funny point of view. Life that's relatable and, like, emotional, like emotionally funny and... And something I often tell parents when they're like, all my kids reading is Diary of a Wimpy Kid. And I'm like, I'm sorry, did you say they were reading? That's all I want. <laughs> that is literally my job is to get them reading. Yeah. I don't care if they're reading a magazine or if they're reading Diary of a Wimpy Kid or if it's a graphic novel. They are engaging with literature. Yeah. They're thinking. They're expanding their mind. Yeah. Because the more words you read, the better your vocabulary is going to be. All right, we are running out of time, so thank you for talking. We didn't really talk censor- censorship as much as... No, and I don't think Fox really applies to censorship. It's never been really a intensely banned book the way Matilda has or The Witches. But it's more this li- these lines of, like, the treating of adult characters or humor or these kind of bigger, bigger ideas that 
Roald Dahl includes in his books. That definitely some of them come through in the movie, but then Wes Anderson takes them in his own way, too. And, like, he includes humor, but it's his humor as opposed to Roald Dahl's. Although I think it certainly is a good fit. Oh, absolutely. Like, they definitely match well together, but I think the humor of this movie in comparison to the humor of Danny DeVito's Matilda are two very different humors. (laughs) They're both very much in the spirit of Roald Dahl, but they are not Roald Dahl's humor. Yeah. So, yeah, anyway, that's it Um, for... For those of you who aren't in the room, uh, my laptop just spontaneously died, and we uh, weren't sure if it was going to recover the audio, but it, it did. It only cut. It only missed a little bit of it, and Tyler wasn't even telling that good of a story anyways, so we're good. <laughs> so yeah. Uh, minute 84. Minute 84. Catch us next time for Minute 85. Till then, follow us on Twitter at Amateur Nerds, or me personally at Tyler Booty, T-Y-L-E-R-B-O-U-D-Y. Rate, review, subscribe on the podcatcher you're listening to right now, or email us at amateurnerdspresent at gmail.com. Let us know if you listen to this and you don't listen to Star Wars Minute. Please. And we'll catch you next time I for more credits. I'm Tyler Boudreau. I'm Condra. And we hope you have a fantastic day. Fantastic.